This podcast is intended for healthcare professionals only. Welcome to the Diabetes Knowledge and Practice Podcast, your bi-weekly source of news, views, and updates in diabetes care. Today's episode is supported by an educational grant from Novo Nordisk AS, who has had no influence on the content or choice of faculty. Once again, I'm James Bannister. And I'm Emma Phillips. This week, we're taking a look at hyperglycemia and how to reduce the risk of it in people with type 2 diabetes. As always, we'll begin with a quick summary of relevant literature before joining Professor Simon Heller of the University of Sheffield for his expert advice on how to reduce the risk of hyperglycemia in people receiving insulin. If you're already familiar with guidance surrounding hyperglycemia, please do skip ahead to the expert interview around the five minute mark. As always, all references we discuss in the session are available in the episode description. Hypoglycemia is defined as a blood glucose concentration of below roughly 4 millimoles per liter and causes symptoms including dizziness, fatigue, and sweating. Although most oral medications do not carry a significant risk of clinically significant hypoglycemia, the mechanism of action for sulfonylureas, that is the stimulation of insulin release, is associated with an increased risk of both moderate to severe and severe hypoglycemia. Similarly, insulin therapy directly causes continuous glucose-lowering effects, which can lead to hypoglycemia unless precautionary steps are taken. In order to reduce the risk of hypoglycemia, EASD and ADA guidelines recommend the use of SMBG testing in order to monitor glucose levels throughout a day. This was covered in detail in a previous episode, but to reiterate the key points... For those receiving basal insulin, a few SMBG tests are required to monitor therapeutic efficacy throughout the day and guide dose titration. For those receiving more intensive therapies, a full 7-point SMBG profile should be used in order to track glucose levels, recognize when levels are dropping too low in a day, and identify personal trends in order to strategically manage glucose throughout their day. The selection of insulin is also important in reducing hypoglycemic risk. In terms of basal insulin, ADA EASD guidelines note that long-acting agents are associated with less hyperglycemia than NPH insulin. Similarly, among long-acting formulations, the guidelines note that insulin degladec is associated with a lower risk of severe hyperglycemia compared with Glargine U100. However, a concentrated formulation of Glargine is available, U300. This concentrated version has demonstrated comparable efficacy and safety to Degludec across clinical trials. For example, the CONCLUDE study, which compared both insulins in people with type 2 diabetes previously treated with basal insulin and oral glucose-lowering agents, found that both insulins were associated with similar rates of overall hyperglycemia. Further secondary analysis identified a possible superiority for Degludec in reducing severe hyperglycemia but the investigators noted that as the trial failed to meet the primary endpoint, this result is hypothesis-generating only. Beyond selection of insulin, though, how can we identify patients at higher risk of hyperglycemia? In their 2018 review on hyperglycemia among people with type 2 diabetes, Richard Silbert and colleagues report a number of risk factors for precipitating a hyperglycemic episode. These include dietary behaviours, including delayed meals, irregular carbohydrates or skipped snacks. Lifestyle behaviours such as unplanned exercise and general health, including comorbidities, longer duration of diabetes and frailty. Social factors such as food insecurity, financial burden and poor health literacy can also increase the risk of hyperglycemic episodes. Addressing these factors requires specialist education and support, including to families and caregivers among people receiving insulin. Trials evaluating the utility of structured education programs are limited, as described by Ernest York and Yukoba Atiasi in their 2018 review. 
They identified two studies. The first evaluated a peer-led diabetes self-management program, which demonstrated improvements in symptoms of hypoglycemia, depression, and communication with physicians. The other study failed to demonstrate a difference between their structured education approach and standard care. Similarly, a paper by Ahmed Iqbal and Simon Heller, published in 2018 in Diabetologia, noted that a lack of studies have demonstrated reduced severe hypoglycemia in insulin-treated type 2 diabetes patients. However, across RCTs and observational studies, structured education, including both insulin self-management training and or specific training in hypoglycemia avoidance, leads to reductions in the rates of severe hypoglycemia for type 1 patients. So if there's a lack of evidence to guide us in optimal practice, how can we help insulin-treated people with type 2 diabetes to avoid hypoglycemia? Joining us to answer that very question is Professor Simon Heller from the University of Sheffield. So thank you so much for joining us today. Our first question is, there can sometimes be a perception that people with type 2 diabetes don't have a risk of hypoglycemia, and that when it does happen, it's less severe than people with type 1 diabetes. How do you address this perception in your clinic? I think for many years, and perhaps until recently, when I think things have changed, there was indeed a belief that hypoglycemia, as it pertains to people with type 2 diabetes, was, as you say, both less common and less severe. And I think that that was probably because a lot of the hypoglycemia was buried and there was a situation in which those who see people with type 2 diabetes, and I mean healthcare professionals, such as GPs and, and general internists, would often not inquire about it. And it may be that even uh, those with the condition uh, weren't entirely clear what was happening to them. Over the last few years, there's been uh, a definite change that uh, the appreciation of type 2 diabetes and the side effects of treatment, insulin and sulfonylureas in particular, which give rise to hypoglycemia, uh, have become more apparent. And I think that's due to um, research, some of which we've conducted, but uh, others have as well. And, and that's begun to inform the healthcare professionals who look after people with diabetes that this is indeed uh, an issue. So you've asked me how I prepare for this in, in my own uh, my own work, uh, and I think it's uh, making sure that the people I work with uh, are clearer about that, uh, and also uh, when uh, I give educational lectures explaining that. So there are some key papers which have been published over the last few years, and I think it's important to explain uh, those uh, to colleagues and also uh, to explain uh, the basic pathophysiology and why hypoglycemia is indeed a problem in type 2 diabetes. Wonderful, thank you. You mentioned educating your colleagues and those in the wider medical community, but is there any specific educational approach that you would recommend for people with diabetes themselves? Um, well, I think there are a good... Um, uh, good sites on uh, on the web these days which allow people to 
educate themselves and get reliable information. Working uh, in the UK, uh, Diabetes UK, uh, the national charity, have really excellent uh, educational information on their website, which is easily found. I'm, I'm also responsible uh, for developing with colleagues across the world um, a website based uh, on the work that we've done. It's called the International Hypoglycemia Study Group, uh, and it's a group of healthcare professionals, nurses, doctors, psychologists, uh, who built uh, an educational resource, uh, not only for healthcare professionals, but also for patients themselves. And uh, I, I think those are two sites that I know, but across uh, the world, there are websites often involving uh, professional charities, uh, which, which are reliable uh, and indeed probably more reliable uh, than some of the um, group chats that people can join, which can be very good, uh, but can also be misleading. I see. Thank you for a very detailed answer, which leads me on to our next question. As described in the paper you co-authored in 2018, no studies of structured education for type 2 diabetes has demonstrated a reduction in severe hypoglycemia. In lieu of clear evidence-supported approaches, how would you recommend that our listeners help the people who receive insulin prevent hypoglycemia? One of the issues when you do research in people uh, with type 2 diabetes is that the risk of hypoglycemia, particularly severe, is probably a third that of type 1 diabetes. Of course, it's worth remembering because type 2 diabetes is 10 times more common uh, and even those on insulin outnumber those with type 1. Uh, numerically, uh, hypoglycemia is arguably a bigger problem in type 2 th um, than it is in type 1. But nevertheless, when you do research, it means that uh, studies may not show a positive result because the number of events are less uh, than one expects. So just because there's no evidence proving it doesn't mean that education uh, isn't important. Uh, and as we have very good evidence in type 1 diabetes that education can uh, reduce severe hypoglycemia dramatically, uh, I think we can be confident that the same is true in type 2 diabetes. Um, but uh, therefore, when uh, talking to patients, there are some really fundamental uh, areas that we should establish uh, as they start insulin treatment or treatment with sulfonylureas, which increase the risk of hypoglycemia. So what do I mean? I mean that we need to uh, explain uh, to uh, people, lay people, that their blood glucose can fall, that that uh, can be uh, dangerous because uh, below a certain level, 70 milligrams per deciliter, uh, uh, then their brains begin to uh, suffer because they're not being given an essential fuel in this uh, respect, glucose. Uh, therefore, they can become confused uh, and they need to take action uh, by raising their glucose. Uh, and we need to also explain uh, that uh, they can uh, treat, self-treat, by taking refined carbohydrate with very clear messages um, and also warn them uh, of uh, periods when they might be at greater risk. So those are very basic um, 
very ba basic uh, advice, which, which should be uh, a part and parcel of, of any education program, as simple as it is when you start somebody uh, on, on insulin, be they type 1 or type 2. Marvellous. Thank you very much. You started to cover this with that last comment on advice to give regular patients. But what other clinical tips can you offer to our audience? Is there anything that they can do themselves starting tomorrow to immediately help with their patients, for example? Yes, well, it's often said, uh, and I think it's true, that uh, healthcare professionals, be they nurses or doctors, have very little time uh, to spend uh, with uh, people with type 2 diabetes. Uh, and there's so much to discuss. How can they possibly uh, include a discussion of hypoglycemia? But there's some very simple questions which can uh, warn the healthcare professional and indeed uh, the patient that they may be at increased risk. I think one of the most simple and easy questions is to ask the patient uh, at what level of glucose uh, do they have symptoms? Uh, when do they begin to feel low? These are the classical symptoms of hypoglycemia, sweating, tremor, palpitations, um, or, and a bit of confusion, a mental uh, ability not as clear as it should be. Uh, and you say to the patient, um, when you go low, uh, at what glucose level do you have symptoms? Uh, and if they are experiencing symptoms above three millimoles per liter, 55 milligrams per deciliter, you can be confident they're getting alerted before their brain functions becoming impaired. But if they say, well, it's funny, doc, actually, uh, sometimes, quite often, I, I, I check my glucose and uh, when I feel low and it's 2.5, even as low as two, uh, and I just seem to be okay uh, and treat myself. Now, that is a red flag for healthcare professionals and they should warn their patients that they are at increased risk uh, and they should take action to try uh, and correct that. And I think it's important uh, to remember that just asking that question and noting it down takes one or two minutes. Uh, and so it's possible even in a pressured conversation uh, to, to address the problems uh, of hypoglycemia uh, and to alert uh, both you and the patient to something which may cause uh, a real problem. Excellent. Thank you so much for your time today. These were all very clear responses. Well, it was a pleasure talking with you, uh, and I hope the information that I've uh, provided is useful. Thanks very much. This brings us to the end of today's episode. To summarise, it's imperative to support people who use insulin and help them to minimise their risk of hypoglycemia. This can include a range of multifactorial approaches, including stressing the importance of regular glucose monitoring, selecting agents with reduced risk of hypoglycemia, and finding an exercise pattern that works best for the individual patient. As we discussed earlier, all references and guidelines discussed in today's episode are available in the episode description. We'd also love to hear from you. If you have any questions or comments about today's episode, join the discussion online with the hashtag DKIPpodcast. If you haven't done so already, consider subscribing to this podcast on your favorite app or recommend us to your colleagues. You can also access all of our free accredited CME content at knowledgeandpractice.eu. Thanks for listening. We look forward to joining you next time, where we'll be comparing titration approaches and self-directed algorithms explored in numerous clinical trials. 